content of this advertising. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. You're listening to an encore presentation of Pilgrim's Progress. We will not be taking calls today. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? This scripture was coming from the Apostle Paul. He and Silas had been in Philippi and they'd been preaching. But their preaching excited such consternation among the people. And then he touched a woman, and delivered her from a devil, from an evil spirit. And they beat him and put him in prison. And as he's in that miserable place, he's not moaning and groaning and wailing before God, saying, why have you done this to me? I didn't deserve this. Why have you mistreated me, Jesus? Instead of that, he is, along with Silas, singing songs of praise and worship. And he's glorifying Jesus and he's counting it a pleasure to be mistreated for the sake of the gospel. And as he is singing those songs of praise with Silas, all the other prisoners are awake and they're listening and wondering about this strange man who would sing in the midst of a dungeon. And suddenly the walls and the ground and the floor, everything shakes. And Paul's and Silas's and the others, their iron chains fall off. They are set free. And the jailer who lives next door comes running ready to take his own life because he knows that if the prisoners escape, he will be executed. And so he is determined now to take his own life. And Paul cries out, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. This is Acts sixteen twenty-eight. The jailer then called for a light, and he ran in. And he, he falls down, trembling before Paul and Silas, He brought them out and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must you do to be saved? The answer in that day was, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. But today we have so twisted the simple gospel. We have twisted it to mean that we can be saved in the midst of our sin. Just a note about today so that those of you listening will understand. I cannot do an exhaustive presentation of what I must do to be saved, countering all of the false things as well as explaining the steps necessary to be saved to meet the conditions of God. Next week, I'm going to focus entirely on this question 
of what must I do to be saved? And what does it mean to be saved? Saved from what and saved to what? I'll deal with that extensively in the next week. If you have friends you'd like to invite to listen, that would be wonderful. These are very serious questions. Let me read a portion of scripture to you. This is Ephesians, the second chapter. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now, part of the very difficult issue that we must address is in the first chapter of the book of Ephesians. I'll begin reading with verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Well, what about the man or the woman? Who sins. They have accepted the wonderful gift of grace from Jesus Christ. They have, they have been made alive. They have turned from the darkness. They have lived clean before God. And then suddenly they begin to walk into their sin once more. Are they saved one minute and lost the next minute? Is that how it works? Is it easy to be saved and easy to be lost? Or is it hard to be saved and hard to be lost? We're going to deal with that. But today, I'd like to share with you some very simple words from Charles Finney. It's a sermon he preached. And it's entitled, Conditions being saved. Now I want to share I want to share these words with you please. If you want to be saved, you must confess your sins to God and to man. You must return to God. Now, 
at the very beginning of this chapter. He says that you have stolen yourself from God. You must understand that you that you have taken yourself from God. And you now must return to Him. The difficulty between yourself and God is that you have stolen yourself and run away from His service. By right, you belong to God. He created you for Himself. And He had a perfectly righteous claim to the homage of your heart and the service of your life. But you, instead of living to meet his claims, have run away, have withdrawn from God's service, and have lived to please yourself. Now your duty is to return and restore yourself to God. Now again, next week we're going to go into this whole issue of nature. But just as a a brief portion... Am I punished for the sins of Adam? Nowhere in Scripture is it taught that I am punished for my nature. Any more than I'm punished for my brown eyes or my blue eyes. I'm not punished for having gray hair or black hair or white hair or blonde hair. I'm not punished for the attributes of my body. So am I punished for my nature? And is that Adam's nature? And so I'm punished for Adam's sin? Absolutely no. The scriptures do not teach that you are punished for Adam's sin. It teaches instead that we each have sinned and we each are responsible for our own sin. And so when we begin to speak about the conditions of being saved, we are specifically speaking of being saved from our sin. We are not speaking specifically of being saved from Adam's nature. Now, yes, every man has that tendency in him to sin and rebel against the Almighty God. But none of us are forced to sin. Each of us, by our own choice, has turned away from the living God of heaven. So we must come, he says, and confess our sins to God. You must confess that you have been all wrong and that God has been all right. You must go before the Lord and lay open the depth of your guilt. Tell him that you deserve just as much damnation as he has threatened. These confessions are indispensable to your being forgiven. You cannot say, just as a side note, you cannot go to the Lord and say, I repent of my sins. Thank you very much, Jesus. Now, would you please forgive me, and I'll go on my way now as a saved person. It doesn't work that way. 
It must be specific confession of specific sin. And it must deal to the bottom. It must unveil the fullness of a wicked heart. This is the only kind of confession that is acceptable before our God. He goes on. In accordance with this, the Lord says, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant. Leviticus 26, 41 and 42. Then God can and will forgive. But as long as you challenge this point and will not acknowledge that God is right, or you will not admit that you are wrong, you cannot be forgiven. Moreover, you must confess to man if you have injured anyone. Have you injured someone, perhaps many of your fellow men or fellow women? Have you slandered your neighbor or your friend? Have you said things that you had no right to say. Have you in some instances, which you can call to mind, have you lied to them? Or have you lied about them? Or have you covered up and perverted the truth? Have you not been willing to give others false impressions of you or your conduct? Now, if any of this is true, you must renounce all such iniquity. For the scriptures say in Proverbs 28:13, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. So you must not only confess your sins to God, you must confess your sins to people that you have injured. And then you must also make restitution. In other words, you must make it right. You have not taken the position of repentance before God and man. You have not done that if sin remains in your heart. If you continue to cover your sin, you have not been forgiven. God cannot treat you as a penitent sinner, one whom he should forgive, until you have made things right. I went shopping, and I went to Wegmans. And while there, I bought a large container of aloe vera juice, and I put it in the lower part of my cart. As I came to the checkout lady, we had a pleasant conversation as she checked me out, and I totally missed that she did not see the bottom part of my cart where this bottle of aloe vera juice, a $15 purchase, was setting. I went out of the store 
And when I got home, I discovered that it was not on the list that I had not been charged. Now, what should I do? I can tell you what I'm going to do. As soon as this broadcast is over, I'm driving to Wegman's grocery store, and I'm going to speak with one of their managers and explain that inadvertently I was not charged for this item, and I'm going to pay them for it. Well, why would I do that? Because to keep it and not pay for it is stealing. It is theft. But you may say, Pastor, it was their fault, not yours. No, it's my responsibility to put everything on the conveyor belt. I did not do that. And she did not catch that I did not do that. And so I have repented of carelessness. And now I have to go to the store and make right what I did. Unintentional, but I still did it. And then I must make restitution. I must pay the $15 for this item. Now, I was in another place, and I looked down on the floor, and there was a $20 bill. I looked around, and there was no one close by. There was no one who appeared to have dropped it. It was an unclaimed $20 bill. I received that as a gift from Jesus. And I said, Lord, thank you for this gift of $20. It was mine to pick up because it was a lost $20 bill that no one was going to claim. We must look at our actions and be certain that our actions are clean before God. God cannot treat us as a penitent sinner coming to him if we are not in a spirit that is in accord with his spirit. Now he continues, I do not mean by this that God cannot forgive you until you have carried into effect your purpose of restitution by finishing the outward act. For some time it may, it may demand some amount of time beyond the present. It may in some cases be impossible for you. I'm confident today that I was forgiven as I repented for, for not paying attention and putting everything on the conveyor belt. I have repented for that. I've asked the Lord to make me more conscious and more careful. It was carelessness on my part. But the result was a store lost a $15 sale item. I know I've been forgiven, 
but now I must make full restitution. He says, but the purpose must be sincere and thorough. You must finish it. Now, he also goes on, you must renounce yourself. That means, first of all, that you must renounce your own righteousness, forever discarding the very idea of having any righteousness in yourself. It also means that you must forever relinquish the idea of having done any good that, commend, that can commend you to God or even be considered as a basis for your justification. It also means that you must renounce your own will. You must always be ready to not say in your heart or by words that you want your own way. It must always be your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Matthew 6.10. You must consent most heartily that God's will will be your supreme law. Now this means that you must renounce your way and let God have his way in everything, never allowing yourself to fret or be irritated by anything whatsoever. Matthew 6:25 and 1 Peter 5:7 Now I want to expand on this. It is vital if you are going to walk righteous before God that you recognize that there is no area of your life that God is not in control of. When you read Hebrews, the 12th chapter, it becomes very clear that, that we are to treat difficulties as discipline from God. That whatever happens in our life happens for a reason and a purpose. That God is involved in it. Yes, the devil may bring all manner of opposition against our lives, but all of that opposition will be used by the power of God to subdue our hearts, to humble our hearts, and to cause us to enter fully into his purpose for our life. God's power extends to all events, and we must recognize his hand in all things. Therefore, to worry about anything at all is to go against God, it is to have unbelief in our heart. Therefore, as long as you allow yourself to worry, you are not right with God. Worry is a sin. Some of you have made yourself sick with worry. To worry means, I don't like what's happening. I'm rebelling about what's happening and I am demanding a change and I'm going to take it into my own hands if God doesn't do something. Now, 
what differs from that is when there are circumstances that are very trying and God gives us very specific instructions. We are to follow his instructions. We are to do what we know to be right. We are not to do that which we simply desire to do to elevate ourselves, to make ourselves important, to make ourselves look good. We are to dwell in the presence of Jesus if we wish to be saved. He continues, you must become as little children before God, subdued and trustful at his feet. Mark 10, 15. The weather may be fair or foul, but you must let God have his way. Let all things go as they will, yet let God do as he pleases, and let it be your part to submit in perfect resignation to the will of God, until you take this position, you cannot be saved. Remember, once more, we're addressing the question, what must I do to be saved? Which raises the next question of saved from what and saved to what? And so we must come to Christ we must accept Christ really and fully as our Savior, renouncing all thoughts of depending on anything you have done or can do. You must accept Christ as your atoning sacrifice and as your living mediator before God. Without the least limitation or reservation, you must place yourself under His wing as your Savior. And as I have learned, it means in time and space and history, I must totally depend on the Lord my God. Charles Finney continues, you must seek to please Christ above all else. You must seek supremely to please Jesus and not yourself. It is impossible for you to be saved until you come into this attitude of mind, until you are so well pleased with Christ in all respects that you find your pleasure in doing His pleasure. It is impossible for you to be happy in any other state of mind or unhappy in this for Christ's pleasure is infinitely good and right. Therefore, when his good pleasure becomes your good pleasure, and when you harmonize your will entirely with his will, then you will be happy for the same reason that he is happy. And you cannot fail to be happy any more than Jesus Christ can fail to be happy. This Becoming supremely happy in God's will is essentially the idea of salvation. In this state of mind, you are saved. Outside of it, you cannot be. He writes, I have often been amazed 
that many professing Christians are deplorably and utterly mistaken on this point. Their real feeling is that Christ's service is an iron collar, an insufferably hard yoke. Hence they work so hard to throw off some of this burden. They try to say that Christ does not require much. If any self-denial, they say that Christ does not require much. If any deviation from the course of worldliness and sin, they cast aside the standard of Jesus. I understand what he's saying. I hope you do. In today's culture, we have so watered down and we have so feminized the gospel that there's barely any integrity left in it. We have meeting after meeting. We have the bishops come and we have this great speaker and that great speaker come and we have choirs and bands and, and concerts. We have plays and every other kind of entertainment coming into the church. very little about self-denial, about taking up our cross, about doing our duty to Jesus. We've tried to make the gospel palatable to a worldly person. And so probably 90% or more of all of the people in the American church has never been born again, never born from above. They're still pagans. They're just spray-painted with Jesus on the outside, but they have not yet changed by the power of the grace of God. Oh, they've improved. They've improved their relationships. They've, they've trimmed up a little bit their anger and their bitterness. But in their heart of hearts, they're still pagan. And they look at the cross of Christ as something symbolic, as something, something sentimental. You know, it occurred to me, would you like to sit on the throne with Jesus? Do you know where that throne is? That throne is the cross. The throne of Jesus Christ is the cross. He said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. He does that from his throne, the cross. And he stayed on that cross until he passed through it. And on the other side, he was resurrected as the crucified Christ. I cannot be resurrected on the other side of the cross except as the crucified Ray Greenley. To be saved by definition means to have been crucified. It is impossible to without saying, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. It is a crucified person 
who lives with Christ. If you have not been crucified, if you have not finally come to an end of yourself and confessed your sin both to God, to your wife, to your husband, to your family, until you've been crucified, you cannot be saved. And so we see the standard of Christian duty shoved down to a level of fashion and customs and culture of this world. It's much easier to live in the world calling myself a Christian rather than to live in this world wearing the yoke of Jesus Christ. But Christ's yoke, as it really is, is not an iron collar. Doing the will of Christ instead of my business is not hard. But if you claim it is hard, and you submit to the hardness, and some of you do this, you're just doing your duty. I have... I have people who say to me, I've just come to church, Pastor, to do my duty. I know it's my duty to come here and serve, and so I've come to do my duty. They're really religious people, not Christian people. How much religion of this kind would it take to make hell? Not very much. When it gives you no joy to do God's pleasure, and yet you're required to do his pleasure in order to be saved, then you are perpetually forced into doing what you hate as the only means of escaping hell. One man said to me, the only reason I come to church is because I want to escape hell. What a miserable man. And then every once in a while, he just breaks out. He brazenly sins. And then he comes back and he confesses his sin. He really doesn't want to serve Jesus, but he's afraid he'll be cast into hell if he doesn't. His heaven will not be heaven, it will be hell. Can you imagine living for eternity in a place where all there were were people with pure and clean hearts? Can you imagine living in a place where everything was given to Jesus, all honor and glory? And Can you imagine the misery of a man who has claimed his life for himself all of his life, suddenly being in heaven for eternity? in a place where he's absolutely miserable because he never has surrendered his heart to Jesus? No, if we're going to come to Jesus and be saved, we must have complete confidence in Jesus Christ. 
We must be absolutely able to believe in him, in his words, and in his promises. They were given to us to be believed, and unless we believe them, they can do you no good at all. Unless you exercise faith in them, they will not help you, but will only aggravate your guilt for unbelief. God wants to be believed when he speaks in love to lost sinners. He gives them these exceedingly great and precious promises so that by faith in them they may escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. 2 Peter 1.4 But thousands of professing believers do not know how to use these promises. The promises might as well have been written in the sand of the sea. Unbelievers will go down to hell in unbroken masses unless they believe and take hold of God by faith in his promises. His awful wrath is surely against them. He says, I would go through them. I would burn them together. Or let him take hold of my strength that he may make peace with me and he shall make peace with me. Isaiah 27 verses 4 and 5. Yes, let him stir himself up and take hold of my arm, strong to save, and then he may make peace with me. Do you ask how you may take a hold? It's by faith. You must believe his words and take hold. Take hold of his strong arm and don't be afraid anymore Simply stop by believing in Jesus. You stop believing in yourself and in your sin. But you say, I do not believe and yet I'm not saved. No, you don't believe. A woman said to me, I believe. I know I believe. I do believe, yet here I am in my sins. No, I said, you don't. Do you have as much confidence in God as you would have in me if I had promised to give you $100? Do you ever pray to God? And if so, do you come with that same confidence as you would have if you came to me to ask for that $100? We must have that faith in God. We must know that he will do what he said he will do. Let God be true, but let every man be a liar. But you say, well, I'm a sinner. How can I believe? I know you're a sinner, and so is everyone to whom God has given these promises. But I'm a great sinner, you say. Well, Paul said this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I was chief. 1 Timothy 1.15 Now let's come to the bottom line. If you want to be saved, you must forsake all that you have or you cannot be Christ's disciple. 
Luke 14.33. There must be absolute and total self-denial. By this, I do not mean that you're never to eat again or never again to clothe yourself or never again to enjoy the society of your friends. No, not this. Rather, I mean that you should cease entirely from using any of these enjoyments selfishly. You must no longer think that you own yourself. You must no longer think that you own your time or your possessions, your money, or anything you have ever called your own. All these things you must now think of as belonging to God and not to you. In this sense, you are to forsake all that you have. In the sense of laying everything on God's altar to be devoted supremely and only to his service. When you come to God for pardon and salvation, come and lay everything you have at his feet. Lay your sin at his feet. Lay your hopes and your dreams and your ambition at his feet. When you come to Jesus for pardon and salvation, you must bring your heart and lay it at his feet. You must forever give up the notion that you own yourself. You bring your body to offer it as a living sacrifice on the altar. Romans 12, verse 1. I urge you to read that whole passage. It's powerful. Come with your soul and all of its powers. That is, come with your personality. Come with your shy and introverted personality. Come with your extroverted personality. Come with your dry humor. Come with everything you are. And give it to Jesus. In total and willing consecration to your God and to your Savior. You never again will need a moment to worry because everything has been laid at the feet of Jesus, and he now is totally in charge. Your only responsibility is to do what he asks you to do, and he will give you the strength and the power by his grace to fully do everything he asks you to do. And so you come bringing everything. You, you come bringing your body you're no longer going to treat your body as something that is your own. You're not going to come sexually unclean. You're not going to come with pornography or masturbation. You're not going to come with adultery or fornication. You're not going to come with lying and stealing. You're not going to come with anger or bitterness. You're not going to come with foul language. You're not going to come with cigarettes. You're not going to come with alcohol abuse. You're not going to come with drugs. You're going to lay all of these things down at the feet of Jesus and confess every known sin before his throne.
and you're going to acknowledge that you are utterly without any excuse, that you have no justifying reason for the behavior that you have exhibited before him and the, and the myriad of millions in heaven. You are going to come and acknowledge that he is right in his judgment regarding your sin. You deserve hell. You do not deserve heaven. You have nothing about you that recommends you except that he has chosen you and he loves you for his own reasons. And so you come recognizing that he alone is the Lord and you are not the Lord. You are not the God of heaven. He is the God of heaven. So you come bringing your imagination, your intellect, your skills, your artistic endeavors. You come laying down at the feet of Jesus every part of your heart and your life. You withhold nothing. You hold nothing back from Jesus. You say, I have brought everything to you, Jesus. Absolutely everything. I have not kept anything back from you, Jesus. I will not sin against my own soul like Ananias and Sapphira by keeping back a part. Do you remember their story? They sold a piece of property. It belonged to them, but they told everyone they were bringing everything and laying at the feet of the apostles that they were giving the entire thing to Jesus. And then they withheld part of it. And Peter said, is this how much you received? Yes, this is all. And Peter said, why have you chosen to lie to the Holy Spirit? And they dropped dead, both of them, husband first and then wife later. When we come to Jesus, when we come to be saved, we bring everything we have and everything we are and nothing is hidden. Nothing is tucked away in a secret place. We bring everything. And now everything that we are, everything that we have, is given into the hand of Jesus to be used by him for the work of the gospel. We will no longer go and live our own lives. We will no longer go and pleasure ourselves we are now utterly and totally and completely given over to Jesus Christ. That's what salvation means. You renounce your own claim to everything and recognize God's right to it all. You say, Lord, these things are not mine. I stole them. I stole them. They were never mine. They always belonged to you, Jesus. And I'll have them no longer. Lord, these things are all yours, henceforth and forever. Now, what do you want me to do? I have no business of my own to do. I am wholly at your disposal. Lord, what work do you have for me to do? In this spirit, you must renounce the world, the flesh, and Satan 
your fellowship is henceforth to be with Jesus Christ and not with these objects of the world. You are to live for Christ and not for the world, the flesh, or the devil. And I know that right now one of you is making the decision that you will lay everything down. Are you willing to lay everything down today at the foot of Jesus Christ? You've perhaps considered yourself a Christian, but today you see that all is not on the altar of burnt offering. Or perhaps you have been a backslidden Christian or not even a Christian at all. But today, the Holy Spirit is moving in your heart and saying, Will you come? Will you give me everything today? What is your decision? Let me share quickly with you an invitation. I invite many of you to come to the National Prayer Chapel. We are serious about Jesus. That's why we're there. We're not there for religion. We're there to be utterly, totally, and completely consecrated to Jesus Christ. We don't come to do church. We come to meet with Jesus, and he meets with us. If that's a cry of your heart, I invite you to come this Sunday to the National Prayer Chapel. Our service begins at 12 noon with prayer. You're welcome to be a part of the corporate prayer. The National Prayer Chapel meets at the All Saints Anglican Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. That's the All Saints Anglican Church, Woodbridge, Virginia. The address is 14851 Gideon Drive. I invite you to come. Go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com, and you'll see directions there with a map. We have five minutes. Are you under conviction today? Would you like me to pray with you? I'm here to pray for you. I also invite you as the Holy Spirit is moving in your heart. If these issues that I'm dealing with are vital to your heart, I believe all of Washington, D.C. needs to hear this. And the only way I have of sharing this is via the radio. If you'd like to be a part of this ministry and you'd like to contribute, if the Holy Spirit is calling you to give, then I urge you to give tithes and offerings and to be very generous that this broadcast could continue. Write to me at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. That's the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. Now let's pray. 
Lord, I know that many who are listening are contented, thinking, yes, I've given everything to Jesus, but in reality, they still live for themselves. Lord, I ask that you would break the delusion that is upon your people. And then, Lord, there are those today who are under conviction and they see that they have not given everything to you. Lord, they see that they have that they have withheld like Ananias and Sapphira. And yet they call themselves saved. They call themselves Christians. They go and practice the religion. But Lord, they're under your judgment. I ask, Lord, for those that have withheld from you, that the conviction would increase in their hearts and that they would finally say, yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. I lay it all down. It's yours. I've stolen it. And then, Lord, there are those precious ones today who have laid everything down, who have given you full control and full authority over their lives. Lord, I pray for them a blessing today. I pray that you would encourage their hearts and give them the courage to stand, to not enter into the sin of worry and discontent, but to stand faithful, knowing that you are the God of heaven and you are faithful to your people, that you are a God who does not lie. Lord, I thank you. I ask for your blessing today upon this congregation. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Pastor Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. God bless you. I'll talk to you soon. Before the presence of His glory with great joy. With... This is true.